Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and ask you to guide and lead as we look at your word and be with us. And let us hear what it is that we're to learn from this uh, chapter that we're looking at. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 2. And we're going to continue. Chapter 1 was all about the last bit of the conquering of the land. Uh, the, kind of a repeat of Joshua, the last couple chapters of Joshua. And we're going to continue in, in chapter 2. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bokshin and said, I made you go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore also, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as the thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept, and they called the name of the place, Bochen, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. So we're going to stop there because that's the end of the paragraph. <laughs> so we're seeing the children of Israel were semi-obedient. And remember, the one thing we kept saying, and it was in this last chapter, they didn't get rid of all the people. Okay? Remember that, that phrase that was there? The Canaanites were put into subjection. They put them, they put them under taxing and, and made them subject to them and, and took a tribute from them. But they didn't kill all the people, which is what they were told to do when they went into the land. Kill all the people, get rid of all the altars, get rid of all their gods, and be my people. And they never, they, many of the tribes did not do that. And so we're looking at here, and it says, the angel of the Lord. And I'm going to stop there because usually when you read that statement, I'm of the belief that this means it was Jesus who appeared to them. Uh, now, there is some controversy on that, but usually when it says Jesus, the angel of the Lord, uh, when Abraham met the angel of the Lord, he worshipped the angel of the Lord. When Jacob met the angel of the Lord, he bowed down and worshipped. And no angel ever takes worship, because only God is to be worshipped. So, is every single time going to be Jesus? I don't think that's necessarily true. But in this case, he, I think this is Jesus speaking to them. Because he says, I brought you up, uh, I made you to go up out of Egypt. And this I is God. And we know that God is the one that brought them up out of Egypt. Because if this was an angel speaking to them, it would have said, God brought you out of Egypt, not I brought you out of Egypt. So I believe that this is Jesus speaking to them. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And there are many of them in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, they're called Christophanies or Christophanies. I've never heard of, you know, that's the term I've heard pronounced in. But Christophanies, appearance of Jesus. I believe that Jesus was the one that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the night. He was the one that showed up in, to tell Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom, and, and he had this conversation with him. He's the one that wrestled with Jacob in, in, on that night of wrestling. He's the one that appeared in the fiery furnace when Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego was put into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, there's one likened to the Son of God in there. Okay, There's many appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Why? 
because he didn't start his existence the day he was born. He had been God from all, all eternity. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So he had a knowledge that he was going to have a body, a human body. So he appears frequently in the Old Testament to be the Christ uh, ahead of time. And he will have this body through all of eternity. And if you remember, in heaven, John saw him as the lamb slain. Jesus bears the scars of our purchase even in heaven. And it's said that he's, he has the only, the only man-made thing in heaven is the scars on Jesus' body. And I am so glad he's going to take the tears from our eyes because I don't know that I could look at the scars for all of eternity and not break out into tears. You know, if it is, it would be happy tears, you know, because we're in heaven with him. But uh, so we have here another one of these pictures of Jesus. And we're going to see him frequently showing up in the book of Judges. He is the one that shows up to, with, to Gideon as Gideon is threshing the wheat in the wine press. Now, very hard to thresh wheat in the wine press, but that's where he's threshing the wheat. And the words he says, oh, oh mighty man of valor. He's, he's hiding in a wine press and he calls him a man of great valor. <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of contradictory, and you know, I can picture Gideon kind of looking around like, uh, is there somebody else in here with us? Uh, but we know that that's a picture of Jesus, because Gideon immediately goes out and makes a sacrifice to him. So it's, you know, we're going to see Jesus throughout the, this book, and we're, we always want to set that up. And so he says, the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal, which is Bethel, to Bokshan, which as far as we know is a place just slightly outside of Bethel. But nobody's really sure where it's at. Uh, I looked it up and I'm going, nobody knows where it's at. Most people say it's outside of Bethel. A couple of people say it is Bethel, but Gilgal is Bethel. And how you travel from Bethel to Bethel, I don't know. Uh, yes, they're two different places. Bethlehem is just southwest of Jerusalem and Bethel is north east of Jerusalem by a, about a day's walk. Uh, Bethel is the house, is literally the house of God. That's where Jacob saw the uh, staircase to heaven and the angels ascending and descending and wrestled with, with, the, with God. And then he says, I made you go up out of Egypt. I have brought you into the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Yeah, and this is a precious promise. Israel has a promise from God made to Abraham that he would never leave them. He would bless them. He would multiply them. If the people bless them, they will be blessed. If they curse them, they will be cursed. And that was an unconditional uh, covenant with them. Just because Israel misbehaved did not mean that God was going to break his covenant. He punished them several times over their over their time, but he says, I've made a covenant. You are my people. We live under the new covenant or the new testament, uh, testament law uh, rules, and he made us his people unconditionally. And this is very important for us to understand. He died so that we could be his people. And just like the children of Israel, when we become his child, it is unconditional. We are his child forever from that point. And he will not say, I'm getting rid of you. you know, and this is very important for us to understand. Once you are saved, you are saved. 
Now, you may decide you don't want to live for God and, and want to go home early by disobeying him and get, receive all the loss of rewards, but you, once you have made your decision to be his, you are his. Now, the question can come down with, did you really become his? Okay, and you know, there's certain denominations that will say you've lost your salvation. I would say you never had it in the first place. If you lost it, you never had it because Jesus gives us eternal life. And by definition, eternal life is eternal. And if, he's, if, we, if he gives it to one moment and then takes back eternal life and then gives it back to us and takes it back, it's not eternal life and there's no, no hope in that. Now, can you not be saved and think that you are? We already know that. Jesus said many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? Okay, there'll be many people who are trying to depend on their works and their, and their activities, but it really comes down to, do you have a relationship with God? And once you have that relationship, you're going to stay in that relationship because you're part of the bride of Christ. And God will never get rid of his bride. We're looking at this, and he says, I will never break this covenant with you. And then he says, part of in verse 2, and I told you, you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. You shall not obey, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And this last chapter was in that whole little section where they didn't conquer the, all the people. They didn't kick them out. They didn't kick them out. They, they made them their servants. They subjugated them and made them pay tribute. But they left them in the land. And several places they did this with this, specifically the Canaanites. But, you know, we remember we talked about this and they left other, other groups other than the Canaanites were left in their land. And this meant that not only did you have these aliens that God told you to destroy, they did not worship God. They worshiped their own gods. So in the middle of Israel were these pockets of people worshiping their own gods. And that's what God said, to get rid of these people. We already know that they have trouble with it because how did Balaam get them into trouble? He told Balak, go send the women in and, get, and tempt them to worship uh, Baal. And they worshiped Baal and lost 24,000 people were killed because of that judgment. They did not listen to what they were told to do and it's going to hurt them. You know, which is the same thing that happens to us when we don't fully obey God. We do it to our own hurt. And we need to be very careful that we listen to God and say, God, when you say to do something, I need to follow through. Because when you don't complete it, you, you will have a consequence for the, for the not completing it. Always. And we've said this over and over. There is consequence for sin. Sometimes very severe, sometimes not so severe. You know, they're, they're thinking that it's not that big a deal to leave these people alive. They're just some people, you know, bad people, worshiping the wrong God in the middle of their, middle of their country. No big deal. <laughs> I don't know how they thought that, but, you know, God said kill them all, and they're going to leave them. You know, they're going to leave them there. And his question unto him, why? Why have you disobeyed my direct command? And this is something that's very important for us to understand. When God gives us a direction... We need to follow it. When we're reading God's word and we see something in there that said, and he says to us, pay attention to this. This is part of what you're supposed to do. We better obey what he says to do or there will be consequences. 
And we need to be very careful on this. Verse 3 says, Wherefore I said, I will not drive them out from you, but they shall be as thorns to your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. Now this is a direct contradiction of what God said, because he told them when they went into the land, he would drive the people out. And remember, all through Joshua, it said, and God killed more of them than the people killed in the battle. When they had the hailstones fall down, they, they said he killed more of them. He drove people out by, with hornets. He, you know, he, he did supernatural things to drive the enemies out, and yet they never finished the battle. So God says, okay, you didn't finish it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to drive them out anymore. You wanted them there, they're there. Okay, and oftentimes that's exactly what happens in our life. We leave something undone in our life, and God says, I was helping you get victory, and you wanted it to be left. Well, welcome to the thorn in your side that's going to be a problem for the rest of your days. And he says, they're going to be a thorn in your side, and their gods are going to be a snare unto you, unto you. And we find out, not just in the book of Judges, but all the way through all the kings, these, these people are going to be a, a, a thorn in their side and their gods are going to be a, a thorn in their side. All the way through Jesus' day, they're, they're a pain in the neck. And even in the modern day, all these people that they didn't kill are now the very ones that they're having trouble with in the Middle East because they didn't do what they were told to do. So, I mean, this is long-term generational problem because they were disobedient at the very beginning. And, you know, we've got to be very careful because if we don't obey God, we can lay the foundation with our children for long-term disobedience. You know, and this is something that is very critical for us. You know, what areas of our life did we not obey God in and we see it in our kids? And you know what usually drives us nuts when we see it in our kids? Is the very things that we know we should have corrected in our own life and didn't. And especially if we outgrow it, it's hard for us, but we've set our kids in a path that takes them down the wrong direction. And all we can do is pray for them that God will get hold of them. And we're going to see this over and over. You know, they didn't obey and there's a consequence for it. And it says in verse 4, And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called upon the name of the Lord and called the name of the place Bokin, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. They made the right response, at least out, outwardly. They wept and repented and offered sacrifices. And uh, good first move. But we're going to see that it doesn't last long. It doesn't last long. And this is something even for us. Many times when people weep and go into repentance, oftentimes it's because they got caught, not because they're truly sorry. And we've seen it, you've probably seen it in your kids many times. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, what are you sorry for? You got caught or you were really sorry that you did it? Most of the time we as humans are are sorry we got caught. We're sorry that God called us out on it and we give an outward appearance but not a real heart change. And I think that's what they're doing here. You know, I can't be absolutely sure, but you watch what happens very quickly thereafter and there's not a huge change in their, in their life. And uh, 
Okay, verse 6, we'll read the next paragraph. And when Joshua had let the people of uh, go, the children of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Hiras, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gagash, and also there the, and also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works that He had done for Israel. All right, so here we see, the people were obedient all the days of Joshua. Now that's actually quite a statement when you think about how they treated Moses for forty years. You know, every time they turned around, they were uh, disobeying and being disobedient and challenging Moses. But it says for Joshua, in the promised land, they obeyed God. That was the next generation from Moses. Right. Well, yeah, technically, of the same generation, the ones that had walked with him. And it says they obeyed Joshua. So the people have the right attitude. And you know, we look at this and it says Joshua lived to be 110 years old. He died. And then it says they were obedient for the rest of that generation. The generation that could give them first-hand stories about what God had done in the wilderness. Okay, God fed us. God delivered us. He drove the enemies out. He gave us victories. That generation followed God. The generation that followed that two generations out from, from Moses or one full generation out from Joshua turned away from God. Before we get too judgmental on them, this usually happens even in most even Christian families. You've got the patriarch of the family can hold together the family for a long time and then as he gets older or they get out on their own by second or third generation, oftentimes the kids turn from God. It's very hard sometimes to have multiple generations following God unless there's a real strong sense of God placed in each generation. And this did not happen here. And oftentimes, and we're going to see this all through the book of, Ju of Judges, one generation after the judge rules, they, they go into sin again. And it's human nature. And you can see it even in many of our kids. Our kids get raised up. We get saved. We get on fire for God. We make good, thing, good decisions. We get our kids to make a commitment for God, but it's not as real to them as it is to you oftentimes. And then they have this half-hearted one that they either totally fall away from because they weren't really saved or they don't pass it on to their kids. So by two generations, almost always you end up with this falling away and it's not 100% of the time, but oftentimes that's what happens. And it takes a lot of work to keep discipling our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. And hopefully our kids will you know, disciple their kids. But it takes a lot of work to be able to keep it moving for generation after generation because something has to be real. And again, we need to see things that are real in their life. It can't just be, well, you know, back when Grandpa was alive, God did all these things, but we wonder what he's doing now. And a couple of times in Judges, we hear ju that statement being made. 
Matter of fact, Gideon will make that statement. Well, where are, the, where, where are all the miracles that our, that our parents talked about in the wilderness? You haven't done anything in, in generations. You know, and we need to be very careful. Number one, we have to be looking for God's work. How easy is it to not see God's hand? You know, try to share something that God has done with you with a lost person. And you'll get that blank look like, what are you talking about? What did, why are you saying God did this all for you? You just had a really good string of good luck. You know, you were so fortunate. You know, and they won't attribute it to God. And if our kids don't see that, our grandkids don't see that. You know, we look at even America, how far we've fallen from God, especially if you do the historic studies of the 1770s and 1750s and how much God was part of this country. All of our Ivy League schools originally started out as seminaries to teach pastors and missionaries to go witness to the Indians. We know that now by any of those schools. You know, they don't, they, they, they're not there at all anymore. You know, we, and how far this country has fallen from its position with God. And most people don't even know of our religious roots in this country and how strong, or our history, period. But, you know, but here we see God saying, one generation out, they followed God. They followed me. All of the people who lived during Joshua's age followed me. So that's 40, 60, 80 years, depending on how young the people were, you know, from that point. So from the time they enter the promised land, they're going to have about... 40 to 80 years of being following God and seeing it. They had a heart. They had a leader who was following God, bringing up God probably at every opportunity. And they had seen God's direct activities. They had seen him feed, the, feed them in the wilderness. He had seen the, they had seen the river Jordan split open. They had seen the enemy being killed by the hailstones. They had seen the victories and God giving them victories when there was no way they could have victory. So they seen things that, that people didn't see under Moses necessarily? No, they saw the same things under Moses. They, they were just rebellious under Moses. I don't, tell you the truth, I don't know why they were less rebellious under Joshua other than the fact that now they're in the promised land, they're not wandering in the wilderness. Okay, they've got homes, they've got, they've got fields and stuff, so they probably felt at home and were less rebellious. Why were they so rebellious under Moses? Maybe it was to test Moses. Who knows? <laughs> I'm not even going to speculate on why. They, I mean, they were disobedient from the time they stepped out of Egypt all the way to 40 years later when they're stepping into Canaan, uh, into the Promised Land finally. And even then, they weren't too obedient at first. It was just as they settled in that they started getting obedient. And how obedient were they? I don't know, but it says that they followed God. And there was a lot of blessings. And how easy is it to follow God when you're feeling all the blessings? And when you've got plenty of food, there's you know, a roof over your head, and everything seems to be going, going well. It's pretty easy to follow God, at least outwardly. But if we start depending upon our blessings, then that's where the problem comes. And God can say, OK, I'm going to step back and just take your blessings away from you, as he's going to do with them as they stop following him. You get the Job, Job uh, thing going on, but it's the same thing we do. You know, we get blessed by God because we're following him. And he blesses us. He gives us a good job. We start collecting you know, material possessions. 
And then we start depending on our material possessions rather than God, and we walk away from God. And I've said this many times, you get somebody who builds up all their little toys, they've got the SUV and the motorcycle and the vacation home and the RV, and then all of a sudden you stop seeing them in church, and you go, where have you been? Well, I've been up at the vacation home, I've been the RV down at the, the beach, you know, I've just been really busy, you know, having a lot of fun. Well, have you gone to church at least while you've been having fun? Nah, we've just been, we've just been kind of worshiping God on our own. And they probably weren't worshiping God, but that's the quick answer. You know, we were worshiping God on our own. You can, but we can easily get caught up in the blessings and forget who the giver is. And I think that's what's going to happen to them here. They get caught up in the blessings and forget who the giver is. And at first, they're following God. And then it says that, okay, verse 11. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baalim, and they forsook forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed after other gods, the gods of the people that were around about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers, and spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. So we see here, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it specifically says the evil that they did, they worshipped Baalim. And Baalim was the chief male deity of the Canaanites. Who did they have the problem with? They didn't kick the Canaanite people out of their land and they put them under subjection for at least one generation and then the people started coming up and you know they started worshiping the God of the Canaanites. That God couldn't keep God and the Israelites out of their land but yet they're going to go worship the God of the Canaanites. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But they left the people in the land, and it caused them problems. Here they serve these gods, and it says they forsook the God of their fathers, which brought them out of Egypt. And, they, and this is a generation that's forgotten what God has done. They know the stories. And we've talked about this. How often do the religious people remember the stories? The Jews, even to this day, remember the stories that go along with their their celebrations. They'll follow Passover and they know that it has to do with the deliverance from Egypt. They'll follow tabernacles and they know they're celebrating their wandering in the wilderness. But they kind of leave the God part out of it. And I've said this, you know, it's much the way Americans practice Christmas. It's supposed to be the celebration of, birthday, of the birth of Jesus, but for most families it's everything but the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Even with uh, Easter, and I'm using Easter in this case because it's not being followed correctly. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Except for Christians, no, not too many people are doing anything with the resurrection of Jesus. They're doing their Easter egg hunts and their bunny, not quite worship, even though it's pretty close to it. You know, it's it's all about the bun the bunnies, you know, and the, and the candy, and so. We've disassociated ourselves from the religious roots and the religious meanings of these holidays, and this is what the Israelites have done. 
You followed after other gods, the gods of the people that were around about them and bowed themselves to those gods to provoke the Lord. And I don't think they purposely were trying to provoke the Lord, but the Lord was provoked because of their disobedience. And it says, and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now these are two particular gods. Baal is the chief god of the Canaanite people. And Ashtaroth is the female fertility goddess. And uh, so they worship the two main gods of that land. And we're going to, all through the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to read about Baal and Ashtoreth. And when you hear about them not taking down the, the woods, when they said they didn't take down the woods or the trees, they're talking about the Ashtoreth worship, which was a totem pole that, was, that would be created, would be carved into a tree or, or a pole with exaggerated female parts. And then they would grow trees around them in a grove. And the worship of Ashtaroth included an orgy. And that's what they would talk about. Every time they'd say they didn't cut down the trees or the groves or the, or the totems, that's what they're talking about, is that the worship of Ashtaroth was not taken away. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers. Okay, And what we're going to see in this little section here is we're seeing kind of a prologue for the entire book of, of Judges. Because he, he goes, spoilers, he delivered them. He, de he delivered them over and over again. And we're seeing a prologue to the entire book of Judges because the book of Judges is going to be a long series of sinning, repenting, being delivered, living well during the time of the judge, then going back into sin, being judged, <laughs> repenting, being delivered, living well during the time of the delivering judge, and then going back into the same cycle again. And this section that we're in here is going to lay that cycle out ahead of time. It's the prologue. It's telling you what's coming for the rest of the book. So it says, he delivered them into the hands of the spoiler that spoiled them. And that means to take all of the, the goods that they have in the battle. You are, when, you, when you lost, you got your land spoiled. They took everything of value. And remember, we've talked about, especially in, at the end of Deuteronomy and even through Joshua, when they went into battle, part of the way the military got paid, because they didn't get paid, was they got to take anything of value on, on the enemy and from their cities. And so they would get to just spoil the cities, and that's how they were paid. So as long as you won, you got lots of stuff. If you lost, well, you didn't get anything. And so he says, he's delivered them into the spoilers that spoiled them. And he, God, sold them into the hands of their enemies around about them. So God's saying, okay, you want this? I'm going to give it to you. I'm doing this. And this is what we've got to remember. When God lets things happen to us, it's him that lets them happen to us. Okay, and I share this a lot. You know, nothing happens to us unless God allows it. Now, that may mean we deserve it like the Israelites did. They went into sin and they deserved what they got. It could be that he's letting us be tested to see if we really believe what we say we believe. But either way, it's God letting it happen. And we've talked about this. When something bad happens in our life, or at least perceived to be bad, the first thing we need to do is go, God, am I being punished and do I deserve this? Without getting too introspective, you know, don't reach back and say, well, 28 years ago I did this, but... 
in the near future, in the near past, have I done something that deserves the punishment that I'm getting? If so, repent and say, God, I'm, you know, help me get through this and, and, and go through it. If you look at it and you say, God, I don't see anything that I've done to deserve this, then you're going, okay, God, what is it you're trying to teach me? You know, what are you trying to teach me? Because he's wanting us to learn something from it. And we can learn, even, through the, even when we deserve it, we can learn something from it, hopefully to be obedient in the future. But even then, it's going to work good for our life because that's what he tells us. And he says, I've punished you. I'm, I've, I've given the spoiler. I've, and I've sold you into the hands of your enemy. And then it says, and so they could no longer stand before their enemies. The promise before was you were going to be victorious. When you went into battle, they'd be victorious. And now God says, you're rejecting me. You're not going to be victorious. If we are living in sin, we will not be spiritually victorious in our life. Because God's not going to help us stand in our sin. He's going to say, you've sinned. You're going to fall before your enemies. You're going to be in, in subjection to them until you repent. Now, our goal is to repent as quick as possible so that God can then make us victorious again. But if we want to live in our sin, and a lot of times we'll say, well, it's not really that big a deal, God. It's only a little thing. You know, and you know, isn't that how we look at most of our sin when we're in the midst of it? It's just a little thing, God. It's no big deal. It's not like I'm killing people or, or doing this, that, or the other thing, God. It's just a little, little problem. And God says, you're not doing what I told you to do. You're not going to stand up against your enemy. And then it says, and wherever they went, whenever they went out to battle, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. And as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, they were greatly distressed. So even when they did go out to battle, while they were not following God, his hand was against them. Have you ever been in a place where it seems like God's hand is against you? Been there myself more than once. And that's when it's really important to fall on our knees and our face and say, God, I repent. Help me to change my life. Because if he's actively, if he is actually actively against you, you better look in your life and find out what it is that is wrong in your life. And it may seem to be small, but get it out. Get it out before God and get it taken care of. Because when he's actively against you, you're in trouble. You know, if God is for us, who can, stay, who can be against us? If God is not for us, oh, yeah. look out. Because you're not going to stand against anything. Then you're going to fall at the smallest things that come your way. And this is, when, when you're walking with God and you're in fellowship with God and you're right with God, you can go through the harshest storms and barely notice that you're in the middle of a storm. When you are not right with God, it doesn't take much to knock you over. It really doesn't. And it seems like anything and everything will knock you over. And you'll be thinking, God, I've never had this happen to me before. I've, you know, and God goes, yeah, right, get right with me and it won't happen again. But you know, we go through the middle of a storm, 100 mile an hour winds, you know, and without being touched when we're walking with him, because we're in him with his strength, and then we get blown over by a puff of, puff of breeze, and we're going, wow, what, what just happened? And we need to be very careful because when God says you're going to be judged, he allows things to happen. And because we're walking in our own strength, it doesn't take much to knock us over. 
You know, we, we just survived a ton of bricks being dropped on us with God, and then a feather knocks us over because we're not walking with God. And you know, just it just goes into, if we're walking in our own strength, we're in trouble, always. You know, we might think, well, I'm not going to criticize anybody, or I'm going to be really loving, and then the next thing we, and we do really good while we're walking with God, the next thing you know, we're criticizing anybody, everything, and, and, and no, every little thing that goes on because we're not in fellowship with God. And we've got to be very careful because if you're getting a critical spirit, then you're going to have to look, God, am I, you know, where am I with you? Where am I with you? Because God says we're to love one another, we're to be merciful to one another, we're to give grace to one another, we're to edify one another. And if all we find is ourselves saying, well, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this person, and you know, and you, you've got this and you've got that, and we might want to look at our life and say, God, where did I get out of fellowship with you? Help me get back into fellowship with you. That's a dangerous place to be when you're criticizing everybody and anything. Because God doesn't take that lightly either. <laughs> he doesn't take it lightly when you're criticizing you know, people and things and activities and all of that. And we need to be very careful. It's not going to do good anyway because everybody's going to come after you and they're going to not want to be around you and, and you get more of what you give and you know, only the spiritual people would be edifying and trying to build you up. But you're going to get a lot of bitterness and anger back at you and, and attacks back at you and it causes dissension. If you're spreading criticism amongst especially God's body, it brings dissension and divides the body up and makes things difficult. And we need to be very careful of it because God doesn't take that lightly. Because think about this. If you're attacking other people in God's body, you're attacking the bride of Christ. And Jesus isn't going to let his bride be attacked. He will deal with it. He will take care of the problems on it. And again, whether they deserve the attack or not, because he doesn't look at them that way. He's looking at them through the eyes of love that says, this is my bride. This is my body. This is my church. And we're, if we attack each other, we're attacking his church, even if we're part of it, even if they deserve it. You know, we need to be very careful how we do it. Are there things that have to be corrected? Sometimes, absolutely. But how do we do it? Do we go on a whispering campaign all around everybody and and cause dissension, or do we go and deal with the problem up front? Prayer. And prayer is the best way. So many times, if you go into prayer, number one, God changes your attitude, but also he changes the person that you're praying for. And it's an amazing thing to watch God fix the problems. And if he can't fix the problems, he takes the problem out, and that's the scary thing. You know, if he can't fix, if the person won't repent, he'll take them out. And when I mean out, sometimes completely out, all the way to home. Sometimes he'll take them out of, the, out of the church. Sometimes he'll take them out of the wherever they're at. And oftentimes he'll just take them home if they won't repent. And this is why I tell people, you know, our best bet is to let God be our defense. We pray for the person and let God be our defense. And it scares me sometimes when I've watched God be the defense of some people. I've seen him defend people in my lifetime and, and watch people and their family suffer because they wouldn't bow their knee back to God and continue their criticism of different people. It's a scary thing. Don't fall into it, but be prayerful. If you see somebody doing it, be prayerful for them because the ultimate goal, if they don't, God will take them home. And you know, he oftentimes will do a lot to them before he takes them home.
and sometimes will even do things to their family because of their disobedience. And this is a sad thing as we look at what can happen to people and how much trouble people can get into when they're disobedient to God and how much trouble they can cause on close family members and friends. You know, especially if their friends and family are feeding into their, their disobedience. And God will say, okay, you're, you're feeding into their disobedience. I'm going to take and give you the punishment that comes along with that. I mean, if you don't really see, like, every, everything you're doing, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we, we don't see everything, everything we do. I agree. You, you can ask God to take you a step back, because usually we don't see the forest because of the trees that we're in the midst of. And sometimes when you're in a hard time, there's two things you need to do. Just step back and start seeing the forest rather than the tree in front of you. And you can seek counsel. You can pray. But, you know, most of the time we get into a place where we see no way out. It's because we've got the, the tree right in front of our eyes and we don't see any other way out of, the, out, of the, out, of the, out of it because all we see is that big tree that we're, we're put our nose up against. And God says, just step back. You know, step back, and, you, you, and there's the path you know, right next to the tree. The path took a little turn to the right, and I walked straight right into the tree. And then I'm going, God, I can't see anything but this tree. He doesn't call a sheep for nothing. <laughs> this is true. We've talked a lot about that. You know, sheep, sheep were not a good thing. You know. But we do this frequently. As the sheep, I've told you, my friend had this little hill and his sheep. And every once in a while, the sheep would get behind this little hill, and they would panic because they couldn't see the house, they couldn't see the other sheep. Oftentimes we're in the midst of our problem, we're behind a very small hill and if all we did was take a step up on top of the hill or even around the hill, all of a sudden the whole panorama opens up and we go, oh, that's the way out of it. But you know, and it's human nature, it's really human nature to get wrapped up in the problem that we're dealing with and not step back from it. And if we just let God pull us back from it, and he'll say, here, let me show you how to get around this problem, and he makes it so simple, and when you get there and you, and you let him deal with it, it's so wonderful, you go, God, man, that was so simple, God, because, yeah, it really was, just <laughs> stay on the path next time, or stay, stay inside of, you know, in, inside of me, and don't get off and do your own thing, because we always get in trouble when we do our own thing, God, I think I've got this, I can do this on my own. If you think about your, your little kids, especially when they started doing things on their own, I don't need your help, Mom. I don't need your help, Dad, as they crash the bike, uh, as they you know, fall into the hole that you're trying to keep them from falling into, as, as they do all these different things, and you, you, you just wanted to help them not have that. And oftentimes, we do the same thing with Jesus. Walk right into the hole, walk right into the tree, and then wonder how to get out or how to get away from the tree. All right, verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them, and they turned quickly out of the way after their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And they repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of their oppressed, that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers and followed other gods to serve them and to bow down after them. And they caused not 
and cease not from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because that this people has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto me, I will not therefore drive out from them before them any more the nations which Joshua left when he died, and though and through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left the nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivering them, delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. All right, so this is that place where I tell you God's given us the prologue of what's coming. He says, verse 19, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges and delivered them out of those that spoiled him. So God gives them over to, to being spoiled and, and being, being run. And God says, okay, I'm going to send judges. You know, and then it says in verse 17, And they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went whoring after other gods and bowed themselves down and turned themselves quickly out of the way. This was the pattern that they're going to have. The judges tried to bring them into the right way of following God. And they sometimes do a little bit, sometimes don't, but they will follow God in, to a degree. But they don't completely turn their hearts back to God. They, they repent and you know, God says, you know, you, you're getting this because, and the word he uses, you went a whoring. He says, Israel, you're my bride, and you're prostituting yourself to these other gods. And that's a strong word. You know, it's a strong word, but God uses it on purpose. When we are not worshiping him and we worship some other god, we are prostituting ourselves to these other gods. And we've said this many times. We in our day and age, you know, try to get real, you know, high and mighty. Well, we don't have idols. We don't have any gold statues. You're right. We don't have any gold statues, but we have lots of idols. Lots of idols. Anything that puts itself above God in our heart is an idol. And that can be anything. It could be our TV where we just have to watch TV. It can be our hobbies where we're so wrapped up in our hobbies that we don't do anything for God. It can be, it can be our family. For some people, it can be their family. You get so wrapped up in your family that they become what's all important to you. You'll skip your Bible reading and your praying and your church time to, to, to be with family. And I'm not saying that's completely wrong, but if it's all that you do, it's wrong. For some people, it's sports. They know everything there is to know about their sport. Uh, they know every race car driver and how many miles they've been, how many races they've won, and, and probably who their, who their team members are in the, in the pit, and, and uh, probably who their family members are. You know, it's, you know, or, or you're a football fan, and you know every single, all 55 players of the team and all of their stats and, and the, the stats of all the games for the week. Maybe it's your hobby that you're so into that you spend all your money on your hobby and you spend all your time on your hobby and that's what you talk about. If you want to know who your God is in your life, what do you talk about the most in your life? That'll tell you very quickly who, who is most important to you. And for a lot of people, work can be their God. And, you know, and each of these things are not something that is totally irrelevant. We need to work to be able to earn money to live. We need to have hobbies to give us something fun to do. We can use sports to be entertained, but if these things get so important in our life that they're raised above God, they no longer are good. And Satan likes to try to get us busy doing 
good and keeping us from the best. Even with service in the church, sometimes Satan will get us so busy serving in the church that we don't do what God tells us to do, which is the best. We get ourselves really busy doing things, serving God. You know, God, I'm really serving you. I'm feeling burnt out. I'm really tired of all I'm doing, but, I, but God, I'm serving you. Isn't this, isn't this wonderful? And God's saying, yeah, but all I asked you to do was, was uh, clean, the, clean, the, clean the outside, and you're doing all these other things. Or all I asked you to do was teach the Sunday school, and you're doing everything else. You know, we need to be very careful. Satan's goal is if he can't keep us from becoming a Christian, he will try to get us busy. Busy, busy, busy. Let me do lots of things for him. And almost all Christians fall into that trap. Especially when they first get saved, they try to do everything. And they're going, well, it needs to be done. It really needs to be done. And I've shared with you, I would rather see a job not be filled by the wrong person than be filled with the wrong person. Because if the wrong person's filled that job, the person who's supposed to fill it comes along and says, oh, I really thought I was supposed to do this job, and now maybe I didn't hear from God. And then they end up, quite likely, not doing anything. And we need to be very careful. Listen to God. Find out what it is he's asked you to do, and do that job. And do it as well as God will let you do it and give you the strength to do it. But don't try to get too busy. If you're ever working in the church and you feel like you are being stressed out by what you're doing, you're probably doing jobs that God has not given you to do. Not that you're ever going to be, you know, tired or, or find it hard to do the job. But if you're always tired and, and not wanting to do the job, you're probably not called to that job. Because I can tell you, I love being a pastor. I love being a teacher. Is it stressful at times? Absolutely it's stressful at times. But you know what? I can't picture myself doing anything but this job. And, because, and, I, and I have peace more often than I'm at stress because I want to turn it over to God. And so I challenge you, find out what God wants you to do and do what he's asked you to do. And if you're finding something to be too big a stress, step back and say, God, am I supposed to be doing this? And if he says no, stop doing it. You know, stop doing it. Then the right person will come along. God will always provide a person to do the job that needs to be done. And if there's no person to fill the job, then maybe it doesn't need to be done. And this is a big challenge, and I've heard it many times. People go, well, I'm having trouble getting Sunday school teachers. Well, then maybe you're not supposed to do Sunday school. And that's a, that is a sacrilege to, to most people to hear that kind of terms. You know, uh, we're having trouble getting uh, nursery workers. Well, then maybe we don't have a nursery. I told one pastor, I can solve your nursery problem real fast. He goes, how? I go, close the nursery. Somebody will step up. Either, either they'll step up or it was what it was supposed to be anyway, and the kids are supposed to be in the, in the service. It's not that big a deal. If you can't get people to serve, either that job is not important enough to be filled or you need to do something that will make people step up and fill the job. And if you stop the nursery, either it wasn't needed, and that's a possibility, or people are going to step up and say, well, we, you know, I can give up one Sunday a week, a month to, to take care of these kids. You know, all of these things are important. Yes, anything needs to be done. Everything needs to be done, maybe. <laughs> But so many times we get stuck in our churches as this is what we've always done. And if we do it just because we've always done it, God may be over two miles away doing something else and we're stuck over here doing what we've always done. And, and God's over there, hey, uh, come on over here. I'm, I'm working over here. 
I don't know what you're doing over there with that dead thing that's been dead for, for eight years, you know, that you've been managing to keep alive somehow, and it's not really alive. Come over here where I'm working. And we need to be aware of this. And that doesn't mean we abandon everything at the first, first trial that, that we have, but we also look at it and say, is this the correct way to do what we're doing? And oftentimes, churches get wrapped up in this is the way we've always done it. We can't give this up because we've done it for, you know, in, on the West Coast, 30, 40 years. On the East Coast, hundreds of years. You know, if you're in Europe, you know, centuries and centuries, we've been doing it this way. And God's saying, well, come do it. Come do it with me. I'm, I have something fresh for you. And, you know, it says here that they went whoring after these other gods. And it says God sent judges to deliver them. And that was a gracious gift that God gives them because most of the time they had not repented completely. They were, they were groaning and praying for deliverance, but they weren't ready to, to repent. And God sent the judges before they repented in most of the cases. And then the judges delivered them, and then the judges brought them to God for the most part. But even then, they didn't totally follow God. So these judges are, are like our modern-day judges? Or no? They're rulers. They're the rulers. Uh, judges in Israel were both spiritual leaders and they were also the, the court. Uh, they would come to them for court decisions. Moses sat in this, as a judge and his father-in-law said, hey, you're, you need to give some smaller courts. Give, give some other people room to deal with. Uh, you know, break it down, I think it was down to 100. You know, give a judge responsibility for 100 people. And if it's too, too hard a case for them, they can send it up to the one for 1,000 who will send it up to 10,000 and eventually it will come to you, Moses, if it's a really hard case. Kind of our supreme, it's the way our, the way our founding fathers laid out our judicial system. The local level, the area level, all the way to the supreme court level uh, was from that same pattern. So yes, they're, they're rulers, they're judges, uh, and they're religious leaders. They're kind of everything all wrapped together into to one, and he called them judges. Um, was Gideon a judge? Yes, Gideon was a judge. Uh, so they were also warriors? Huh? They were also warriors. Most of the time. They were, they were the ones that led the people into victory uh, through, through usually they started by a battle of some sort, took and kicked out the enemy. Then they ruled the people, trying to bring them to God. And some were more successful than others to bring them to God. And the, the Hebrew people were very stiff-necked people. They were not an easy, easy people to rule. Uh, they were uh, always wanting to do things their way. Kind of like most Christians. God, I want you to do it my way. Uh, <laughs> Usually in the church, the biggest problems we have is that uh, we don't sing enough songs. We sing too many songs. We sing too many songs for the hymnal. We don't sing enough songs for the hymnal. We sing, we sing too many choruses. We don't sing enough choruses. And if you try to please every single person who's supposed to be worshiping God, you can go crazy. Okay? And, but that's usually the way things go. Uh, you know, the pastor speaks too long. He doesn't speak long enough. You know, he's, you know, he's, he's always in the Old Testament. He's always in the New Testament. He's always doing this. He's always doing that, you know. And there's so many, again, we need to be very, so careful because these are the things that separate us. And this is what the children of Israel did to their leaders all the time. You know, uh, well, you know, you got us following God, but what has God done for us lately? 
Yeah. And that was their attitude in most cases. All through the book of Deuteronomy, we saw that, you know, what has God done for us lately? He's kept it, he feeds us every morning with manna, but uh, what else do we have? You know, so he gives them quail. You know, so he gives them quail, you know, uh, you know, and he gives them water, and he gives them all this stuff, and yet there's always this attitude, what has God done for me lately? And we've got to be careful because we can be very judgmental on them, but we do the same thing with God. God, the last thing I remember you doing was about 10 years ago. What have you done for me lately? God, the last thing you did for me was 10 minutes ago. What are you doing for me now? You know, that's how short-sighted we can get, too. Look for faults. We're looking for faults. We're looking for signs. We're looking for wonders. You know, and the thing we've got to keep in mind, we read the Bible. We read the, Abra the, the life of Abraham. The life of Abraham goes for about six chapters and covers 80 years. And it lists about six things that happened to him in 80 years. But we read it and say, boy, Abraham had a really exciting life. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And we forget that it took 80 years. There were long periods of time in Abraham's life where little to nothing happened. The sun came up, the sun went down. He made his sacrifices. And then all of a sudden, God would step into his life and shake it up a little bit and give him something to do. You know, we look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts covers 40 years of activity. And you can read, if you really want to be anxious, uh, quick about it, you can read the entire book of Acts in one day. Okay, one, one short sitting. And then if you read the book of Acts, it goes, wow, Paul had a really exciting life. He went here and this happened. He went there. You know, and then you read Galatians and it says he spent three years in Galatia, which takes a half a chapter in Acts. And one event in Acts gets told to us and we go, okay, what happened the rest of the three years? Well, he preached every Sunday and all through the week. He, he witnessed to people. He, he, he stirred up trouble by preaching God. He had all kinds of times and all he did was do what pastors do. Go to, go to the church, teach their people, make, you know, and encourage them to live for God. Then after he had the church started, he went to another place. They give us one or two excerpts of that, and we find out somewhere else that he spent three or four years there. We need to be careful as we're reading the Bible. These people lived lives just like we do. Weeks, months, years, where it seems like God is not doing much of anything in our life. Okay, now if you look, he's doing plenty around us as we know. But it just becomes routine things. And then God steps in and something miraculous happens. And God gives you a great ministry to do for a while. But you know, even that great ministry eventually becomes routine, even though it's at a higher level. The next couple years will be routine until he steps in and gives you another big event in your life. This is the problem reading the scriptures because we can get this disconnect of time. It's the problem reading the biographies because we can get this disconnect in time because we look and they say God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this, and we kind of forget that there's months and years in between each one of those big events in their life. We need to be careful because God is doing plenty in our life if we will stay focused on him. All the blessings that he gives us in our life on a day-to-day -day basis, but we need to look for them and that will keep us focused during those routine times. And I hate to use the word routine, but really that's what it becomes, a routine. And then God steps into your life, pops it up in a level or two, and that becomes your new routine. 
as long as you keep it that way. And you get closer to God in a higher level with a greater responsibility. And here God gives them a judge. And they followed God while their judge lived. And as soon as the judge died, in verse 19 it says, And it came to pass that when the judge died, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. And this is a human thing as well. To fall away from wherever you're at, we will usually go deeper into the sin that we return to. We see it all the time with people who are alcohol, you know, addicted to their alcohol. They'll get off, they'll be healed, they'll be, and then all of a sudden they'll fall off the wagon. They don't just start with one or two drinks. They usually go deeper than where they fell, where they left. Somebody does the same thing with smoking. They do the same thing with any sin, just as it says here. They go further than where they were before, and in their case, because it's generational, they go further than their parents did. And when we see our children not follow after us, we'll see them go deeper into the sins that God delivered us from. In most cases, they'll go deeper into whatever sins that we set the example for. And it's a scary thing. It's a sad thing. And it says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against him. And he says, I will not drive the enemy out of you anymore. They're here to stay. And they're going to be there to stay until Jesus comes back at the second coming and starts ruling them as the, the king of Israel and the world from Jerusalem. But until that time, they're stuck with their enemies. And they're still stuck to this day with their enemies, giving them harassment because way back in the very beginning, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And you can even take that back all the way back to Abraham, who didn't do what he was supposed to do. He, he gave birth to, to Ishmael, and then if Ishmael wasn't enough, after Sarah dies, he has another eight children with Keturah. You know, he's 120 years old and he has eight more kids with Keturah who become part of that world out there to get the blessing even though he didn't give them the inheritance. He did all kinds of things to help mess up his family in the long run. And there's going to be these problems that they're going to face. And then this last statement, and we're going to end on verse 23. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Okay, this goes all the way back to Joshua. Joshua did not encourage the people to finish the job that God gave them. And we need to be very careful. When God gives us something to do, we need to finish the job God gives us. We need to be able to finish the race. One of the greatest things, my prayer for myself is, I want to finish the race strong. Because I've seen so many people in my lifetime that have not finished strong. They get to the end, they get toward the end, and they, some reason they stumble or fall and lose their marbles or something. I don't know, but they, they tend to walk away from God for a while and sometimes never come back and hardly ever come back as strong as when they, when they left. Looking at somebody like Billy Graham, who seems to have been strong all the way to the finish. We look at different people that were strong all the way to the finish. That was Paul said, I finished the race, I've run the race. And I've seen other people who have run the race, but I've seen a lot of people who have stumbled close to the finish line and not, run, not finished the race. 
and my prayer for each person here and myself and all the other people I know that are following God, that they will run the race and finish it strong and not fall. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to worship you. And Lord, we ask you to guide and lead us as we go through this day. Give us opportunities to share you with others and give us the eyes that will see those opportunities. Give us the grace to see what you would have us to do and that we will run the race well and, and finish strong. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.